prominent San Antonio criminal defense attorney is gunned down in his own house as his children slept in their rooms. He had reportedly been receiving strange phone calls in the weeks leading up to his murder and had confided in at least one prosecutor he was scared for his life the day before he was killed. Yet as police investigated this obvious hit, the evidence didn't add up. Who killed this loving father, husband, and attorney? Killing. Missing. Hidden. A podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing, Missing, Hidden. This is your favorite attorney host, Brad. Happy you're back again with us. I'll apologize up front. I feel like dog poop. I've been in bed all weekend. I've made time to record for y'all because, you know, we've got that whole in sickness and in health vow that we've made to each other. So I'm here working on it, but because of that, this will probably be a short one this week. And there's probably going to be lots of fun, gross noises that I make that I won't have the energy to edit out. So I hope you enjoy this one. Um, You know, before we begin, I'm just going to, again, pimp our new merch store. You can find it at kmhpodcast.com slash shop. We're also still recruiting Patreons. If you're interested in helping keep the lights on in this podcast, just head on over to patreon.com slash kmhpodcast. Easy breezy. Okay. All right. On on to the episode. Brian Vaughn was a 16-year-old rising star in the world of high school basketball in the San Antonio area. His father, Leslie Vaughn, was an extremely well-respected criminal trial attorney. Yes, they exist. And he was known to work on behalf of a manner of all sorts of bad dudes. Basically... He'd help anyone he could. Uh, You know, mafia types, cartel members, you name it. He was my type of guy, basically. Madeline Vaughn was Brian's mother, and she was an RN, often had to work the night shift. And then Leslie had another son, Brian's brother, uh, Chris. I believe he was about 12 years old when the story takes place. So we're talking November 10th, 1988. I'm sorry, 1998. The medicine has me seeing things. Brian and Chris raced over to a neighbor's house in a panic because they heard a gunshot come from their father's room. Brian told the neighbor he tried to check on his dad. The door to the bedroom was locked. He, but he, he said he could hear someone moving around in there. He could hear his bro, his father breathing or struggling to breathe. But he wanted to bring his brother over to the neighbor's house for safety. Brian insisted, you know, he had to he had to go back over and wait on the police because he had called 911 before he brought his brother over. When the police and, you know, the EMTs arrived uh, at the house, they had to force their way into the bedroom because, again, the door was locked, and there they found Leslie Vaughn dead. He had been shot execution style straight in the back of the head. It appeared the perpetrator gained access to his bedroom by throwing a limestone rock through some French doors that led to the bedroom's second-story balcony. Leslie Vaughn 
may have been awake. The TV was on when the police came to inspect the room. He either fell asleep with the TV on or, or was still awake. I think from looking at all the evidence, he was probably sleeping. Now, it's worth noting that this balcony was actually rather high, about 15 feet off the ground. So while it wouldn't be impossible to scale, you knew it took some fit dude or dudette to be able to climb up there and bust through that window and take care of business. Investigators were aware of Leslie Vaughn's reputation and were immediately concerned they were dealing with a hit. You know, even the best criminal defense attorneys can't win every case. And police were worried that Leslie may have lost the wrong one, causing some of his more nefarious contacts to punish him for his failure. Leslie had confided in one of his prosecutor friends the day before his death that he had let a client go to jail that was causing problems for him. And the client was well-connected enough that Leslie feared for his life. The family all told the police that they had been receiving these phone calls, that harassing phone calls for weeks leading up to Leslie's death. But when police went to go check the phone records, they couldn't figure out where the calls were coming from. It just came up as an unlisted number, probably a burner phone or something like that. Um, Brian was quoted by an AP reporter as saying, quote, my father was a strong man. He would stand up to anybody, no matter what. I think that's what happened to him, unquote. Now, as police began, or as detectives began their investigation, Madeline, the wife, was the first one they were able to eliminate. Um, she was working that night at the hospital. Tons of witnesses there. She's all over security camera. You know, her. she's using her ID numbers to get meds, all that stuff. No doubt she was at the hospital all night when this occurred. As a matter of course, police swabbed Brian's hands for gunshot residue, and they came up totally clean, no evidence that he, you know, did any shooting. When Leslie was buried, it was a strange scene because it was almost like a husband-wife getting married, you know, the, the bride's family sits on one side, the husband's on the other. Here you had police detectives and prosecutors and other lawyers sitting on one side of the of the uh, funeral, and you had criminals, mafia sorts, and all that sitting on the other. A very, very eclectic mix of folks at his funeral. So the story really gets going when the forensic investigators were brought in. And when they started seeing the crime scene, they didn't see a hit like detectives did. First, they found that it was extremely unlikely that anyone gained access to Leslie's bedroom through the balcony. Because one of the things they looked at, San Antonio had been under days of near constant rainfall. I saw some reports that said it was up to three straight days of nothing but rainfall. And the balcony was facing the woods. Uh, it was just basically dirt underneath. And so they went out there and inspected. There's no footprints. There's no impressions from a ladder. There's, I mean, there's no evidence that even a raccoon had waddled through that area one night. It was just in perfect condition. Issue number two with the theory that the killer came in through the bedroom. 
the limestone rock. Um, it weighed over 10 pounds. And so you have to accept one of two scenarios if you want to stick with the hit. Or I'm sorry, if you want to stick with the hit coming through the bedroom window. First, either this killer threw the rock from the ground and busted the window. Well, that would be, you know, some sort of vintage Chris Paul type shot there because he'd have to throw this 10 pound rock over the balcony railing, which, you know, was over 15 feet, but under the roof and still managed to bust through the window on the first try. Obviously, if you miss, you're going to awaken your target. They're going to come out to see what's going on and your whole hit's going to fall apart. So alternatively, the perpetrator could have climbed up the balcony while toting this rock, but this was already a difficult climb, like we mentioned. And if you're adding on this misshapen, jagged 10-pound rock to the affair, it's just going to be that much worse for you, right? So the CSI folks weren't real convinced that the limestone rock was actually used to bust open the door. I mean, otherwise we're looking at criminal ninja warrior to make that happen, which is actually a heck of a good idea for a show if somebody wants to make that happen. Now, the third problem with believing the killer entered through the French doors is Leslie's dead body had glass on it, meaning he was dead before the window was broken. So personally, that kills any idea that the French doors were used as the point of entry. It was clearly done to distract investigators, right? Now, for what it's worth, investigators did have the medical examiner test Leslie's blood for intoxicants or other drugs that may have suggested he was deeply unconscious. I mean, I'm sure the Emmy will have done this anyway, but regardless, they asked, Emmy did it, and there was nothing in Leslie's system. I mean, not even Tylenol or Advil. So they took the rock back to the crime lab, hoping to be able to pull a fingerprint or two off of it. But unfortunately, the rough service made that impossible. Um, there was either no fingerprints on it or the surface of the stone made it impossible to pull fingerprints off of it. You know, it's probably just as likely the killer used gloves as they just used their bare hands to do this. The only fingerprints the forensic folks could find anywhere in the house for family members, which, of course, you expect. They live there. There was no foreign prints. Now, in examining the glass, investigators found that, interestingly, the killer, after busting the glass, had left the bedroom and went to the hallway bathroom. And they figured this out because there were glass shards which had been inadvertently removed from the bedroom and painted a very light path to the bathroom in the hallway. They opine that, you know, those glass shards either came from being stuck to the soles of a shoe, maybe, you know, maybe they got caught in the folds of some jeans or something down around the cuff. But whatever, for whatever reason, you could follow this little trail of shards to the bathroom. There were, in the bathroom, two black hairs in the sink. The black hairs matched pretty close to Brian's. 
But then again, he lives there. He uses that bathroom. That's that's not very compelling evidence, right? There was also some trace blood and tissue evidence found on the hallway leading to the bathroom, just kind of smudged up against the wall. But that blood and tissue only came from Leslie. There was no other, again, no foreign person's DNA or, or any identifying evidence was there. Now, interestingly, investigators learned that Leslie always kept a 9mm in his nightstand. Um, just part of the job, you know. And when they went to check, there was no gun found in his nightstand. And interestingly, Leslie was killed with a 9mm. So instantly they're thinking, well, he was shot with his own gun. Now, as those good old forensic nerds did their thing, the detectives continued doing their thing. And they started to consider, as they re received all these forensic reports and whatnot, that this probably wasn't a hit. So they went through the traditional, let's eliminate everybody close to him sort of investigation. And they primarily, you know, they looked at friends and family who were close, who had any sort of oddities in their background. You know, not odd in a murdery kind of way, not odd in a that cool barista with the pink hair sort of way. And wouldn't you know it, police did find somebody who stood out a bit. Brian, Leslie's own son. See, a few months before his father's murder, Brian had gotten in an argument with a security guard at a local bowling alley. Things escalated, and then somehow Brian, you know, did an oopsie and uh, sucker punched the security guard. Now, unfortunately for Brian, that security guard was an off-duty sheriff's deputy. And so it didn't take long for him to call up his buddies, they caught Brian, who had run, who had left the scene, and arrested him. There was a second odd fact, too, with Brian. Shortly before his father's murder, Brian's car caught fire and just burned like a mother. It was totally destroyed. Fire investigators said it was very suspicious and was likely an attempt at arson. And they kind of all, you know, everybody involved with it kind of believed that Brian either did it or was at least present when it happened. Quick legal factoid for you. I think we may have talked about this before, but, you know, it's not arson merely because you decide to burn down your own house and your own car, assuming you're not doing it, you know, to hide a body or hide evidence of another crime. It doesn't really become arson until you try to collect the insurance money. And here, no one tried to collect money on Brian's vehicle. So it never truly became an arson case. But investigators had their ears up once they learned all that from the fire investigators. Now, once police found this out about Brian, they got kind of suspicious that he maybe could be the type of person that was involved with this. And so they spoke to his little brother, Chris. And Chris said he recalled the car fire that led to a huge argument between Leslie and Brian. But Leslie was willing to buy Brian a new car, not a new, new car, of course, to use vehicle. But Leslie, I'm sorry, but Brian was like really upset about that. He wanted a brand new car. He had his heart set on it. He insisted on doing it. And Leslie said, no, look, your grades suck. 
I'm not buying you a car that, for all I know, you just when you destroyed your last one. And in response, Brian said if he didn't get the new car, he'd quit the basketball team, which would effectively mean he was throwing away any opportunities for a college scholarship because, like I mentioned earlier, his grades were no good. And Chris said they argued that entire night until somewhere around 1130. And this was corroborated by the car salesman at one of the lots they visited. He said he remembered seeing them. They came in and they were looking at vehicles until something happened and they just started going at it. So there was some tension there. And, uh, well, wait, did, did I mention that this argument occurred the day before the murder? That's that's probably a little bit important. Let me let me throw that in. The argument occurred the day before the murder. Now, apparently, car arguments were common between Brian and Leslie. Brian had stolen his dad's car a few times, sneaking out at night. And it actually had gotten so bad that Leslie resorted to sleeping with car keys under his mattress so Brian couldn't sneak out anymore. All right, now for the damning evidence. The 911 call Brian made first, if you'll remember, he told the neighbors he had already called 911 and he was going back to the house to wait for the police to arrive. Well, the neighbors recall exactly what time all this took place, 1.24 a.m. They had no doubts. The husband and wife were consistent. That's when this happened. Yet the 911 call didn't occur until something like 1.41 a.m. And when investigators listened to the 911 call there was a big oopsie in it remember how brian said that his father's bedroom door was locked he didn't know what was going on he just heard a gunshot well on the 911 call itself brian told the operator that his father had been shot and was bleeding from the mouth Again, a big whoopsie, right? So when investigators asked him about this, he couldn't explain how he knew that his father was bleeding from the mouth when he couldn't get into the room. He was adamant he couldn't get into the room. He was also adamant that his dad was bleeding. Didn't didn't mesh well. Also interesting, uh, the first responding officer said that Brian told him his dad was bleeding from his head. Neighbor, Those neighbors that took in Chris for the time being told police that Brian was wearing a different shirt when he came back from meeting the police than when he f- had brought Chris over. And everyone agreed that Brian was just unusually calm during this whole episode. Eventually, based primarily off of that 911 call, they decided to charge Brian with murder. And he ended up being tried as an adult, found guilty, and received 33 years in prison. The defense's theory of the case is that no, there was an intruder who shot him. Of course, that didn't go anywhere. But, you know, as, as a defense attorney, sometimes you just got to play the hand you're dealt. The prosecutors kind of... Uh, Arrogantly is not the right word, but proudly proclaimed, I guess, that the best evidence they had in this case was Brian's own statements. 
The 911 call didn't make any sense. His statement to the first officer on the scene didn't make any sense. He couldn't explain why he had changed clothes between dropping off Chris and the police arriving. And there's a 20-minute window, well, 15 to 20-minute window between when he dropped off Chris and when he made the 911 call that he could never account for. And so based off of that, he kind of essentially convicted himself. So there's not much room for legal analysis on this one, right? It's it's pretty straightforward. This is how most criminal cases play out. You know, when you're on the defense side, you just, you got a bunch of bad facts and you got to do your best to mitigate the damage. Here, I, I guess, Brian just, you know, hung on to his story about the hit and wouldn't back from it. I don't know. Um, you know, if if you look into it, the investigation only lasted a couple months. This was not something that drug out. It was pretty open and shut. I am kind of curious about Brian's mental health. He seemed to have some sort of anger issues that he couldn't control. I mean, all teenage boys are angry to some degree. But lashing out as security guard, sucker punching him, setting your car on fire because you didn't want a new one, all that's just, that's scary to me. And I, I don't know if this was signs of a mental illness or if Brian was just being an extremely spoiled brat. Because I do find it funny, not in a haha way, but in an odd way, that Leslie was willing to buy Brian a vehicle after his old one had burned and the fire investigator saying, yeah, this was probably done intentionally. I think my dad would just whoop me until I couldn't walk straight and said, you're going to figure out how to get around on your own. <laughs> and of course, this also kind of gives us a reminder of what it's like to be a teenager. I don't think most of us had the exact same perspective as Brian, but you know, little things are a big deal when you're 16. Um, massively different than what demands an adult's attention, you know. But still, I just have a hard time comprehending committing premeditated murder on your own father because you didn't like the car he was willing to buy for you. If you're interested in learning a little bit more, you can actually check out this case on Forensic Files. It's in season 12, episode six, under the name Shattered Innocence. In that episode, I think it's Brian's uncle is the relative that's interviewed. And he's just amazing. I would love to have this guy as a friend. But he, well, I think it's his last statement, actually, on the show. And it kind of sums up the situation perfectly. And I, I won't be able to do it justice, so I'll paraphrase. But essentially, he said, you know, once a bullet leaves a gun's barrel, everything in your life changes, and it changes for the worse. And that's probably something every teenager in the world needs to know. Once you've pulled that trigger, there's no going back. And, you know, it's, it's sad if you look at what Brian gave up over something stupid. This kid was going to enjoy a collegiate basketball career. He would have had the time of his life in college. Um, you know, instead, he spent that time locked in a cage. And then his poor mother, she lost both her husband and her firstborn child in the roughly 60 days. 
Chris, the youngest boy, you know, he lost the two most important men in his life. Leslie was able to provide an awesome life for his boys. And now poor Madeline, it's a single parent supporting the family on her own. I take some comfort in knowing that, you know, she probably has a lot of assets that were left over um, that she can use to kind of maintain their lifestyle. But it's still, I mean, being a single parent, no matter what resources you have at your disposal, is never easy. And, and again, you just look at this and it's frustrating. This is a stupid, needless murder. It's ridiculous. It should never have happened. But, you know, that's sadly, that's just kind of life, I reckon. So that's going to do it for us this week. As always, we appreciate your support, no matter which way you support us. You want to throw 10 grand at us a month? Awesome. You want to leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts? We love that too, okay? Other than your undying loyalty, we don't ask for much. Again, here I am when I should be in bed trying to entertain you. You can at least help us out a little bit, right? Is that? I'm not a mom. I'm not good at playing the guilt cards. I don't know. Okay, well, I kept you waiting long enough. Here's the palate cleanser, all right? How can you tell if a vampire is sick? How do you figure out if a vampire is sick? Well, you can learn from his coffin. So, all right, we're going to wrap it up there. I am going to take some more medicine and go back to bed and pray for death. Y'all keep listening, keep sharing, and just keep being awesome. Thank y'all so much. Love y'all. Be cool. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at